Hello ladies and welcome to the Amazing Bible Dot Book Club. I am Julie Callio, your host, and thanks for tuning in with me as we walk through the Bible together. If by chance you want to contact me, you can do that at theab.bc.pc at gmail.com. Well, today we are starting 1 Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel are combined into one book called Samuel. 1 and 2 Kings are kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles are just chronicles. But in the Christian Bible, they split them up because of their links into two separate books. In 1 Samuel, we meet a prophet and a judge by the name of Samuel, and he anoints Israel's first king, which is Saul. So our key word for 1 Samuel is actually Saul. The book doesn't say who wrote it, but we have some clues of who it might be. In 1 Samuel 10.25, it says Samuel wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 20.25, we see a scribe, which is someone who writes down scripture, and his name is Shiva. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, it says, Now the acts of David the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. And so it could be a combination of those men. I lean toward Samuel writing the majority of this book with maybe others helping him. Now one date we are pretty sure that happened was when Saul became the first king that was close to 1050 BC. So the events that are happening in this book are around 1100 to 1000 BC. But the writing of course was written later after these events occurred. The events in 1 Samuel take around 115 years. Another thing to keep in mind is that the author is not writing for the purpose of history's sake, but was writing for a godly purpose. In other words, it is theological writing. Theo meaning God, logical meaning the study of. So in other words, the book is written to help us study God. In the Christian Bible, it is the fourth book of history. So if you would join me as we sing my childhood song of the books of the Old Testament, this will be verse two. Let us sing the books of history, of history, of history. Let us sing the books of history, which tell of the Jews. First Joshua, second Judges, then the story of Ruth. Then first and second Samuel, and first and second Kings. Then first and second Chronicles, which give us the record. Then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the queen. So, recap of our books of history so far. In Joshua, Moses dies. Joshua led Israel to take the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs of the Israel nation. The 12 tribes took most of the land. The key word for Joshua is conquest. But each of the tribes left a part where non-Jewish people and their religions reigned. This caused Israel grief by having wars, but even more so by mingling religions and worshiping other gods as well as their God. That is called syncretism. 
This led Israel to sin. After Joshua died, the judges from various tribes led Israel. And the key word for judges is cycles because there was a continuous cycle of Israel's sin by following other gods that led to oppression and punishment from other nations. Then they cry out to the Lord. God therefore raises up a judge and there is peace for a time. Then the judge dies and it starts all over again. In Judges, the writer shows that each time the sin gets more grievous. And there is a phrase that is repeated. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It sure makes me think of today's day. Then in Ruth, we get a glimmer of hope because her love story happened in the midst of the Judges. And we see that not everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was a remnant of people who stayed faithful to the Lord. In Ruth, our key word is kinsman redeemer because Boaz married Ruth the Moabite and through them, we see a descendant of the future king, King David. This leads us into 1 Samuel, which brings us to the end of the time of Judges to where Israel has their first king. Chapter 1 begins with a man from the tribe of Ephraim, and he had two wives, Penina, who had children, and Hannah, who was barren. In the law of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 15, we see that two wives are permissible, and some of the patriarchs of Israel had two or more wives. But one thing scripture makes extremely clear is that it always brings heartache. In verse 3, we see that Elkanah and his family would go to Shiloh yearly to sacrifice and worship at the tabernacle. Elkanah loved Hannah and he would give her a double portion because she was barren. But that wasn't enough. The wife with children would harass Hannah to the point of great sorrow. Verse 10 says that she was in bitterness of soul and she went to the temple of the Lord and prayed. One commentator said that the word prayer is used 30 times in this book. Again, this story begins with hope that there are faithful people in the midst of the majority of people not being faithful. There is a remnant of God. Hannah vowed a vow that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord and to the Lord's service. His hair would not be cut. And this again is in reference to that Nazarite vow, which we found in Numbers chapter six. Well, Eli, the priest was there. He saw her mouth moving, but no sounds were coming out of her mouth. He thought she was drunk, but she was speaking from her heart unto the Lord. Hannah said, I'm not drunk. I just have a sorrowful spirit and I'm pouring out my soul unto the Lord. Eli told her to go in peace and that the God of Israel would grant her request. Scripture says she went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no longer sad. The next morning they rose, they got up early, they worshipped before the Lord, and then they came home to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And she bore a son and called him Samuel. Because she asked for him from the Lord. 
After he was weaned, she went up with her family to Shiloh and gave Samuel to Eli, the priest, so that Samuel would serve the Lord. According to Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, in the Hebrew, it says, she said to Eli, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. Of course, ladies, the key word in what she's saying to Eli is asked. She asked and God answered. Then in chapter 2, we see the prayer song of Hannah. There are some similarities to Mary's song, the mother of Jesus, in her praise, which was found in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. Dr. Betts, my old tea professor, said, This poem sets the theme for the entire book of Samuel. And I believe he means both 1st and 2nd Samuel. God lifts the lowly to places of prominence, and he brings down the arrogant. And we will see that over and over and over again. The second half of chapter 2, we see that Eli's two sons are sons of Belial. That means worthless men or good-for-nothings. Verses 12 says, They knew not the Lord. Yet these two men were serving as priests of the Lord God. They disrespected the Lord's offering. They took portions that was only to go to the Lord. In verse 17, it says, It was so bad that people did not want to bring their offerings to the tabernacle to the Lord. In contrast, we have Samuel, who ministered before the Lord. He wore a linen ephod. It also said his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him every year. Eli blessed his parents and their seed. And Hannah had three more sons and two daughters. Samuel grew before the Lord. Also, just a reminder, we see again this overarching theme of barrenness of women and then how God provided the miracle. In verse 22, we see that Eli knew that his sons were wicked and they would even lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Eli tried to correct them, but they wouldn't listen. Again, in contrast, we see that Samuel grew on and was in favor with both the Lord and with men. And it's interesting that Jesus is also described in this same way in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Then in verse 27 of chapter 2, we have another nameless character in the story of God. This man of God spoke to Eli and warned him that he honored his sons more than the Lord. That's verse 29. And he made himself fat from the chiefest parts of the offering. So here we get a glimmer that Eli also ate of the portions that he was not to eat. Then the unnamed prophet says, your two sons will die on the same day. He then sends a promise that God will raise up a faithful priest, but not from his line. And ultimately, that faithful priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 starts with Samuel ministering before the Lord. And it says that the word of the Lord was precious or rare in those days. 
There was not a vision of the future of what God was going to do. Because of Eli's poor vision, one of Samuel's jobs was to make sure the lamp of God did not go out. So Samuel laid there in the tabernacle to sleep. He heard a voice. He thought it was Eli. So he goes and says, you called me? And Eli says, no, I didn't. It happened again. He goes and said, you called me? And Eli says, no, I didn't. Go back to bed. Verse 7 says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. That word yet reveals that it will be someday and someday soon. Well, it happened again the third time. Eli realized this time it must be the Lord talking to Samuel. And he told Samuel to say next time, speak Lord for your servant is listening. So God spoke and Samuel said, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And then God told him his plan and that Eli and his sons will be destroyed. Samuel was afraid to tell Eli, but he did at Eli's request. And Eli's response was, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Again, in verse 19, we see that Samuel continues to grow and God makes Samuel's words come true, which is a sign of a true prophet of the Lord God Almighty. And everyone from Dan, the northern tip, and Beersheba, the southern tip, knew that God established Samuel to be a prophet of the Lord. And verse 21 says, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In chapter 4, we see a battle between the Philistines and Israel. The cycle continues from Judges. Israel sins. This time it's focused on the priest's sins of Eli and his two sons. Then Israel loses the battle. So they say, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle in order to win. So they bring it out of Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli go with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Israel shouts with victory when it enters the camp. At first, this made the Philistines fearful, but they took courage and fought. And Israel was defeated with a great slaughter. The ark of God was taken and Eli's two sons were killed. An unnamed man of Benjamin's army came to Shiloh that day, told Eli of his two sons and how they died. And when he mentioned that the Ark of the Covenant of God was taken, Eli fell backwards, broke his neck, and he died. He judged Israel for 40 years, it says in verse 18. Now I love chapter 5. The Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to Ashdod, which is one of their main cities, and they brought it into their God's house, Dagon. The first morning, the statue of Dagon had fallen upon his face, like bowed down before the Ark of the Lord. So they put him back in his spot. The second morning, the statue had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head and the palms of his hands were cut off and only the stump of Dagon was left. The hand of the Lord was so heavy on them with either death or tumors. And later we find rats that they gathered the leaders to figure out what to do. So they took the Ark of the Covenant to Gath, another main town of the Philistines. 
destruction and tumors happened in that town. So they sent it to a third city, Ekron. And they cried out because they didn't want it coming. So they gathered again and said, well, let's send it back to Israel. So in chapter 6, they make sure they do it in such a way to see if it really is God doing it and in such a way that the God of Israel would be appeased. They make sure to bring it on a cart with an offering and they made five golden tumors and five golden mice, which was how God plagued them. And then the five represented the five main cities and leaders of the Philistines. Verse 6 is interesting because these Philistines knew that they did not want to harden their hearts like the Egyptians and Pharaoh. So they made a cart. They put their offering on the cart. They made sure it was pulled by new mother cows. And they made sure that the calf stayed home. So that if the cows went directly to Israel instead of coming back to their babies, they would see that it really was God at work. Well, the cows went straight to Israel. The ark came into Beth Shemesh, which is by Jerusalem. The Levites took the ark and they gave sacrifices unto the Lord. And then the Israelites messed up again. The men looked into the ark. And if you remember, they weren't even supposed to touch it. And God killed them. I don't know if their skin melted like the Indiana Jones movie or if they just keeled over and died. Either way, they died. The Israelites, however, learned and they feared the Lord. And then they wanted someone else to come and get the ark. So men from Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched the ark. They sanctified Eleazar to keep the ark. And then the ark stayed there for 20 years. And verse 2 of chapter 7 says, All of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So here, Israel cries out again. And then verse 3, we see that Samuel spoke to the house of Israel. So we have about 20 years of silence about Samuel as he grew. And the Ark of the Covenant took center stage. But now he is an adult and his ministry is taking off. Samuel reminds the people to return to the Lord with all their hearts and put away the idols and to prepare their hearts to serve him only and he will deliver you from the Philistines. They gathered, repented, fasted, and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mespah. The Philistines came up again for war, but Samuel offered a burnt offering and cried out unto the Lord, and God fought for them with great thunder, and they were killed. And verse 13 says, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The chapter ends by saying he was a traveling judge from four main cities, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and Ramah. And he judged all the days of his life. So ladies, what are some takeaways from this passage? Number one, it is okay to ask of the Lord like Hannah did. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Then it continues that your Father in heaven gives what is good to those who ask him. 
Also, it is okay to pour out our souls unto the Lord. Ladies at my age, I cannot count the number of times that I have crumpled to the floor in tears before the Lord. Sometimes it's due to a broken heart. Sometimes it's due to a fearful heart. But it is so good for the soul. We do not need to fear. God can handle it. Thirdly, we see that there are times that the voice of God is rare or precious. So if we hear him, let's not brush it off. We can respond like Eli told Samuel, speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. And ladies, if we say that, then we are a servant, then that means we are to serve him. So how are you using your gifts that God has given you in order to serve the Lord? Or let's say you used to serve the Lord, but not anymore. So you have turned away from the Lord then let me encourage you to return to the Lord like the children of Israel did. As the Philistines said, do not harden your hearts like the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. But if we hear his voice, if we hear that rare, precious, according to the King James Version, the precious voice of God, let's turn to him and let's obey him. All right, ladies, thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, bye.